Hi, and welcome to The Sustainable Century, where we explore with experts, with leaders, activists, communities of interest, mothers, fathers, and kids, how to buy, how to work, and how to invest for happier lives and a healthier planet. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. Well, uh, welcome. Our guest today is Adrian Barden. He's a professor of philosophy from Wake Forest University, who, amongst other publications, recently penned, humans are hardwired to dismiss facts that don't fit their worldview. A great title. It's found in The Conversation, a great periodical. Uh, Adrian is also the author of Truth About Denial, Bias and Self-Deception, in science, politics, and religion. That's at Oxford University Press. And another one from Oxford, A Brief History of the Philosophy of Time. Wow, <laughs> I want to read that one. So welcome to the show, Adrian. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, listen, I've got a bit of a preamble before I get to my first question, but I think it's really important. I, I just want to say, though, to begin with, you know, for somebody like myself who dabbles in philosophy, I've done it all my life. I love this stuff. Uh, read the stone in the New York Times and all that, but uh, it's a real thrill to speak with an actual practicing philosopher. <laughs> it's just oh. great. <laughs> Anyways, as a preface to my first question, I wanted to quote uh, from your very timely article, Humans Are Hardwired to Dismiss Facts, which is in the, uh, the conversation again. It's an article everyone, I think, who is concerned about truth and politics should actually read. Here's the quote. Denialist phenomena are many and varied but the story behind them is ultimately quite simple. Human cognition is inseparable from the unconscious emotional responses that go with it. Under the right conditions, universal human traits like in-group favoritism, existential anxiety, and a desire for stability and control combine into a toxic system-justifying identity politics. Okay, that's, that's the quote. Now, here's the setup. As of Thursday, there were several states, all Republican-led, that do not have a stay-in-place order for the coronavirus pandemic, uh, despite all medical evidence, which begs us to do so. Governor of Tennessee, Bill Lee, specifically claimed he was concerned about stay-in-place as it would affect individual freedoms. Other governors, equally irresponsible, in my opinion, claimed there was not enough data to support the policy of stay-at-home. Can you break this politically based denial of science down for us? Well, I mean, most people don't really know much about science, much less being a specialist. I mean, even if even if you're a specialist in infectious diseases, there's a in all likelihood you're not a specialist in the coronavirus. And and so, I mean, what, what most people most of the time do is they rely on expertise. And, you know, 99.99% of the time science isn't political. You know, how does electricity work? Oh, like this? Oh, okay. You know, how does chemistry work? All right. Um, and, you know, how does my, is my technology going to work? You know, we don't, we don't, we don't worry about that most of the time, but then, and so we just, we just trust uh, the experts as it gets filtered through, you know, our teachers, the media, our personal social circle, and we can speculate about why it's been politicized. There's the economic hit, and then there's just a, some pretty weird top-down stuff coming from Trump in, in terms of just uh, not wanting to, not wanting to have it, you know, disrupt the perception, leadership, and et cetera, et cetera. So, so when politicized, like you know, like uh, climate change, uh, 
course. People look to signals from the elites that they that they trust, that they identify with. You know, their politicians, their partisan media, um, um, people in their social circle that they really identify with politically, and then, and then that's how they figure out who to trust and what to believe and what perception of risk uh, they're going to have. Um, so, so we're in the middle of this great democratic experiment <clears throat> where um, we live in this media environment where people are able to just kind of pick and choose what their source of authoritative information is going to be. And uh, that has, you know, supercharged our natural tendency towards uh, confirmation bias when it comes to um, issues that we, that we care about for some reason or for some, you know, or we have some, or, or where the issue, you know, threatens our ideological beliefs in some way. Right. And that's when we engage in, you know, the selective assessment of expertise. Yeah. Um, Adrian, it, it, it's shocking to me that people can say temperatures are going up consistently over time, but that's not got anything to do with climate change or to human beings. And you look at the carbon data or conversely in this situation that we're at is you can see the graphs. The graphs are not made up. The number of people getting uh, coronavirus is expanding exponentially, the number of deaths equally. Uh, it's tragic. And you can see the bar graph. But how can, you, how, can, how can you have a confirmation bias when the data is literally that obvious? Well, it is shocking, isn't it? And uh, it seems impossible. I mean, there's some kind of extreme form of uh, self-deception happening there. And, and the very notion of self-deception seems paradoxical, right? How can you deceive yourself? Right. Um, <clears throat> the, the first thing is really important to stress that the, 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 and the data from multiple fields is overwhelming on this. And, and that's that science denial generally is, is not, in climate change specifically, science denial generally is not about being either stupid or uneducated. Uh, we see that for climate change, we see that um, uh, college-educated conservatives are more likely to be climate science denialists than non-college. We see uh, across various, uh, on various measures of, uh, on various issues in science denialism, where people are denying the science, including climate, uh, the people with the highest scores on cognitive reflection or quantitative reasoning skills um, are more likely to be deniers. So what the heck is going on there? And, uh, well, well, first, first of all, so the, so the psychology of it all is, is, it's obviously a psychological story and the psychology of it is shocking and paradoxical, but you know, there it is. It, it is, we're obviously capable of this sort of thing. And, and what, it, when we see that the more educated you are, the more sophisticated you are, um, the more likely you are to engage in this kind of latent denialism. It, it tells you that what's going on there is not reasoning, but rationalizing. And, and when you have more education and you, and you know a little more about the subject, that just gives you more ammunition um, in rationalizing right. the view that you wanted to believe in the first place. Right, right. So it, it's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, when you, um, you get into a social situation where you're clearly being the, the idiot uh, but then you can actually rationalize your behavior based on whatever facts you find lying around. And if you're smart enough, you can convince people that your behavior was correct and the person that you've, say, insulted or abused is wrong. Is it the same thing? Because you see that all the time in life, right? Well, and it's so much easier when, when number one, you've got 
this media environment, as I mentioned, where you can you, you can bubble yourself into a, your your own private echo chamber of social media and news media right. that's going to confirm your beliefs. And also, um, Americans in particular have really uh, you know even geographically separated themselves to the point where you have you can really do a good job of predicting how somebody votes in an election based on whether they're you know in a small rural town in Wyoming you know versus being in New York City. I mean, the, 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 the chances of, uh, of voting one way or the other are, are pretty closely tied to the type of, you know, community you live in at this point. Yeah. yeah. But is it um, and so, so yeah, everything, everything out there is, is you've surrounded yourself with, with information that confirms what you wanted to believe in the first place. But is the converse, well, no, is the converse true? I mean, can people who don't have high level of education or income or, or being well off, et cetera, et cetera, uh, is it always going to be the case that, I mean, can, can they actually overcome these biases and, and look at things rationally as opposed to uh, rationalization? Well, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it an, a, being uneducated, I wouldn't call it an advantage exactly. Uh, but, but there's you you'll get a higher level of the I don't know response. Or, well, you know, or, or or just kind of ignoring you know ignoring the issue. Like that's what you know that's what I heard on Fox. Uh, you know that that's an end to it, right? And and they don't they're not the ones who go on go on the uh, the blogs and argue about argue about you know Milankovic cycles or you know solar <laughs> flares, okay. right? So you in order in order to make these you know bogus arguments about solar flares being the cause of climate change, you have to know about solar flares. Right. So, right. so it's the, it's the more educated who are more active and, and, and in the process, they also talk themselves into being more sure about it. So, right. so if you're going to, if you want to talk, generally you can't talk somebody out of denial because you don't, you know, the famous, the famous quote, you know, you can't to paraphrase Jonathan Swift, you, know, you can't reason somebody out of something they weren't reasoned into in the first place. <laughs> Try, trying to argue somebody into changing their ideological commitments is like trying to argue somebody out of being in love. Right. You're just completely barking up the wrong tree. All right. Well, well, let's come back to how we might be able to approach some solutions to this seeming deadlock. In, in your quote, you frame the outcome of denial uh, as mm -hmm. a toxic outcome. Uh, is that always going to be the case? I mean, that sounds so nihilistic. And, and can, can the reverse be true? I mean, can you actually work to have non-toxic outcomes? Well, we're born with one trait that is uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword, but it's a positive trait, which is our, our pro-sociality, our, our empathy for others. We have a natural instinct of empathy for others. And, um, and that the our evolutionary story, you know, in a nutshell, and, and this is a very important part of the story, is that is that we evolved in these in small groups, uh, you know, little uh, tribes, if you like, right? Little little uh, family, you know, extended family groups, and that's how you know we spend our time for hundreds of thousands, heck, you know, millions of years, going back to you know our ancestral species, and uh, and we developed uh, um, pro sociality as as our primary adaptive trait. I mean, that's what gives us our, our big advantage as human beings. That's what makes us like the dominant species is that we learned how to cooperate, how to depend on others, how to enter into reciprocal arrangements, how to influence others. And, and part of, you know, developing that skill is, is this automatic instinctive empathy um, for others. We recognize others very quickly, automatically. We know this from infant studies as as beings with minds 
and that, and we show um, positive reactions to helping behaviors, and you know negative reactions to non-helpful behaviors. So if you're going to try to build on something, I think that's what you want to build on. Now, but here's the problem, hmm. which is that it's I said it's a double-edged sword. It's that it's that this very pro-social trait of empathy gets harnessed in service to social identity groups. Um, what we call uh, in politics, you call interest groups, or in psychology, you call them in groups. Um, because the advantage is not in being empathetic to everybody. The, the advantage is being empathetic and pro-social towards the people that you identify with, your, your identity group. Um, and that, um, that goes hand in hand with, um, you know, excluding or even, you know, denigrating what in psychology you call outgroups, you know, whoever doesn't belong to what you recognize as your identity group. And so, and this is what, this is the evolutionary origin of ideological partisanship. And it's, it's deep in our psychology and in our evolutionary history. Right. That's incredible. I, I wanted to quote, make my own sophomoric quote from John Locke. Mm -hmm. it, it is one thing to mm -hmm. show a man that he is in error. And I use man because that's what he used. It is yeah. one thing yeah. to show a man that he is in error and another thing to put him in possession of the truth. Is that, is it even possible given uh, these social identities or political identities? Well, maybe in the long term, but I mean, again, it's what we're talking about here when we're talking about ideological commitments is not something that it's not a position that people reason themselves into. They start out with the commitment and then they rationalize it, right? It's what we call motivated reasoning. You start out with the conclusion and then you come up with the arguments and the evidence that you need or want to justify it. And so, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to convert, at least not in the short term, we're not going to convert climate science deniers into environmentalists any more than we're going to argue a Christian into being a Muslim, <laughs> right? Because you're not a Christian because of reasons. You're not a Muslim because of reasons. So reasons are kind of ir irrelevant to the belief. Um, you're not a climate change denier because, you know, you didn't start out as in a neutral, completely neutral, you know, logical position. Like what was it? Mr. Spock on on Star, with Mr. Spock, right? On Star Trek. Yes, Star Trek. Um, yeah. Well, I'm just going to use logic. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting out perfectly neutral on this topic and I'm going to, oh, I've looked at the evidence and I've decided I'm going to deny climate. Oh, it doesn't work like that at all. It goes, it goes completely the reverse direction. It's like, right. I, the, you know, the people I trust and um, what I want to believe, you know, points me towards um, denial. And now I'm going to, you know, selectively seek out reasons to, reasons to believe that. Right. So, so believe what I already believe. So what you're what you're saying, uh, and and pun sort of intended, is is that belief trumps fact. Well, when it comes to something something that you are motivated to believe, yeah. Again, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, and hence we don't we don't have any strong feeling. You know how how you know how electrons move through a system or something, or you know what the atomic weight of hydrogen is. Um, <laughs> but, but again, you know, some issues get politicized. I mean, eventually everybody's going to believe in climate change, yeah. <laughs> you know, when they're, knee deep, when they're knee deep in seawater. But, but by then it's going to be far too late. So, I mean, when we're talking about climate, you know, we have to think much more short term. It's, well, it's, our, it's our kind of like enlightenment, you know, ideal that, oh, we're, we're going to reason, we're going to like use reason and we're going to, you know, talk everybody. And, you know, if we talk about it enough, eventually we'll all agree on the truth. Uh, Maybe over the course of you know on hundreds of years scale, maybe that that's 
um, you know, maybe that could work, um, but uh, you know, on a generational thing. But we don't, you know, we don't have time for that. We we certainly don't have. Listen, let's take a little break right now. I'm starting to I'm starting to feel a little depressed. <laughs> I'll try to think of something optimistic. <laughs> but anyways, our guest today is Adrian Barton. He's a professor of philosophy from Wake Forest University, who, amongst other publications, has penned humans are hardwired to dismiss facts that don't fit their worldviews. Everybody ought to read it. It's in the conversation. So we're going to take a little listen to Christine Sweeney as she sings the song, Aptly, Denial. Yeah, all you can get him to say is maybe So keep going with your half-love Give up thinking about the thing you've been dreaming of And if you don't look back, yeah, you'll be fine Don't look back and just close your eyes But that's fine for a while It's like you're running from something Don't know what from It's like you're hiding from something That wasn't there all along You can't forget it and you can't remember Hi, we're back with uh, Professor Adrian Barton. He's from Wake Forest University, a philosopher and an expert on the meaning of what? What do philosophers know? They know pretty much everything. And I wanted to ask you, Adrian, uh, I wanted to ask you about ego. You know, we all have our egos and our sense of identity, which you assert stands yeah. between us and accepting facts that threaten our, our belief systems. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that works? Well, <clears throat> we define ourselves in terms of our cultural identifications. If I, if, I, if I say to you, Mark, okay, tell me about yourself, and I'm gonna now list the things, I'll just make them up, right? If I say, tell me about you, who are you, Mark? Who are, <laughs> tell me about yourself. You, you'll probably say stuff like, well, I was, I was born in Chicago, um, you know, my parents immigrated from Poland. I was, I was, I was raised a Methodist, but now I'm a Presbyterian. Uh, I'm a Democrat. I'm an environmentalist. I'm a feminist. Um, that's who I am, right? Now, now those are all, but, but, but those are all or mostly statements about, um, you know, belief systems that you, that you share with other like-minded people. That's your self-concept. That's your, that is your identity. Mm. Now, when, so now, when you when you so now when you hear a claim that threatens one or one of those belief systems, when you hear a, a factual statement that threatens one of those belief systems, it feels on an emotional level like a personal attack. Mm. You literally your identity is under attack. Um, you know the deepest you know your de deepest self identification is being is being challenged, and we respond you know automatically uh, to being attacked. And um, we, we automatically then start engaging in, you know, rationalization, motivated reasoning 
confirmation bias with regard to that with with regard to that claim that that claim that's that's challenging uh, us you know on on this such on this personal level right? Right, right and that's when we when we start saying like well i like you know this ex- this expert is saying that's false i like that expert that expert feels like more of an expert to me that expert and i think this other one i've got suspicions about this one is time i think there's i think they're they're they have a political agenda or they're wrong you know and and so you um, you know when you when you you know if you're a you know, hardcore, you know, progressive liberal type, and you turn on Fox News, just watch Sean Hannity for five minutes. <laughs> and, and, it, and it feels, it feels bad, right? Your, right. your stress hormones, like your cortisol, your stress hormones go up, right? Your heart starts pounding. It right. feels bad, right? Yeah. And then, but then you turn on, you know, uh, you know, MSNBC or something. Um, and, and then, and, and it's, it's, it's just, it, it feels more comfortable to to hear the you know to to be enmeshed in the worldview that you're getting there right right so it's all hitting you on this on the on not an emotional on a physiological level Mm. um and we and we are we are you know physical systems we're physical systems that are built to you know defend ourselves against attack right and and so what what so that you know information can trigger this you know fight or flight response but with regard to belief well, we, so would it work then if I subjected myself to uh, substantial periods of time watching Fox News, e- even if it's just to try and understand what other people's belief systems are like, or would that be futile? Well, I guess it depends what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, if you're <laughs> trying to sort of like get a better grasp of how people who watch, you know, who, who you know, dead really dedicated, you know conservatives who watch Fox or how they feel or how they view the world. Yeah. You would learn, you would learn more, you know, more about that. Um, But if it's just like, but if if it's just like, you don't want to, you know, unilaterally disarm yourself either. Like, um, you know, progressives and, you know, or have, have a, have a worldview that includes the notion of openness to new experience. And that's one of the really definitive when you do right. personality tests, right. the famous ocean personality test. And we've seen this over and over again, you know, progressive score high and openness to experience. And, um, um, and conservatives go relatively low on that. This conservatives are higher on conscientiousness. Mm. Like for example, if you're sharing a house with somebody and you want the kitchen to be clean, you know, when you have a communal kitchen, no, you're probably you better off living with the. We're probably better off living with the. <laughs> my super, my super liberal son. I definitely have evidence of that. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, but but yeah, but I mean, if if everyone's, it's not going to be like the solution to our social problems for for just you know one side to say, okay, we're going to start listening to conservative right. media. If the other right. side doesn't do the opposite at the same time, I mean, that's yeah. that's not going to like help our general social situation, you know. But I mean, as we were talking at the break, I mean, we don't have a lot of time left to solve like the climate change crisis. And we do not. And I'm just I'm just thinking, could we witness the end of this version of human civilization simply because our egos and self-identity get in the way of solutions? Well, it's partly, you know, ego and self-identity and ideology, but also, um, you know, as, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, climate change sort of lacks some of those characteristics that. Uh, you know, threat characteristics that people are better at responding to the, um, you know, the personal abrupt immediate now, remember the right. pain, you know, the pain characteristics. Right. And so that's, 
that's you know a fundamental problem about the situation on on top of the um, you know ideological issue. It, it makes it makes of course the denial much easier. When enough people get sick, it's not going to take very long for for these the governors of these various states to kind of flip on this on this right. on this question of sheltering in place. You know because it's personal and it's relatively immediate. And right. so you you see it. You know I could see a response. The response that bears time is going to be more like in, we're going to waste a few weeks, right? But we're right. not going to waste ge- entire right. generations the way we have with climate. I mean, it is an immediate threat. And there's a lot of people out there that are now saying, hey, look, we can use this experience to pivot into a transformative economy, a green economy, an ecological economy. I have my, mm-hmm. I have serious, serious doubts that that could actually happen. Yeah. As well. Best case scenario, we, we reset back to December 29th, 2019. Well, yeah, it's hard to make predictions. I mean, there's, there's, we are, we are on the cusp of some major long-term economic issues. And, um, the, the things that the climate change scenario is like, is like, uh, no pun intended, a perfect storm for the conservative identity. Right. So, you know, c- conservatives are by definition are pro status quo. They're comfortable with, with the, with existing traditional, um, culture with, with, uh, traditional economic and social arrangements. That's what it is to be a conservative. And American conservatives in particular are quite are very individualists. They're small government. There, there's no small government solution to the global environmental crisis, right? There's no status quo solution to it. There's no solution that's not going to upend the status quo. Now, where do we see in the data, where do we see the highest level of, uh, levels of climate science denial? And it's among college-educated white men. Those are those are exactly the people who have most benefited from the status quo. They're the most invested in the status quo. So it's it's hard to see them all converting into environmentalists. You know, when, when I when I'm looking for optimism, I promised you I try to say something positive. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I look for things where 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 you know I look for things where you can appeal to someone's self interest. I mean, quite frankly, it sounds very cynical, but I mean, I mean, you, we have a, we have one one nice data point here is that we have a very. A, starkly falling cost of production costs for solar at scale. Right. right? So that's, that's, uh, that's gives me some reason for optimism where, where we've seen, you know, progress in, in talking to people about uh, a mitigation at least. And this is, this is um, based on the work of, of the uh, social scientist, Dan Kahan at Yale, who all of your listeners should be aware of what he's working on. Um, he talks about how, you know, these regional, coalitions that have come together. He talks about in Southeast Florida, um, you know, conservatives and progressives have gotten together to talk about, not to talk about climate change, but to talk about seawater intrusion into the water supply. And so that's something that, you know, that's an issue they all share, right? Yeah, and so, and he says, don't talk about climate change, just talk about the drinking water. And, and now, now we can have a depoliticized conversation because yeah, we're, we're all in the same group at that point, right? We're all in the same identity group. We're Southeast Floridians who want clean drinking water. On the other hand, of course, that's just, that's about regional mitigation efforts. It's not about the kind of large scale global changes in our lifestyle that we, that we really need. So I guess I started that optimistic. And then I said, <laughs> well, no, but I think, I think, <laughs> I think what your point is, if I would be so bold to paraphrase, is, is that if you find points of, agreement on things that can be easily changed that uh, meet everybody's self-interest, it can be a lot faster. And you can defit, you can depoliticize a lot of issues simply by saying, hey, we want clean water or hey, we want uh, cheap 
electricity find the common co- common interest, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so again, that, that can work on the local level. Yeah. Right. But I mean, all politics are local, my friend. That's one, one crucible we know. But listen, you say that, uh, and this is my last question because we should wrap, but you say uh-huh. that properly understanding the phenomenon of denial is surely a crucial step towards addressing it. If that's true, what are the second and third steps? And how can philosophers interpret the world in a way that will actually help to change it? Well, this is a team effort. I'm I'm definitely not looking to philosophers to save the world. (laughs) Um, So look, philosophers are are pretty good when it comes to thinking rigorously about big picture issues, Um, but they don't don't bring any data to the table. And and for, for this, we need to look at what actually works. Um, <clears throat> one thing that people have been pushing a lot is say, well, if this is all about emotion and identity, what we need to do is what's called, um, you know, message framing, right? Have you heard that term? Yeah. Um, so, you know, so framing is kind of a, it's kind of marketing and, and it, it, you know, let's put the, the situation into terms that conservatives, um, you know, we'll talk, we'll talk about, you know, conservate, you know, conservatives are want, want to conserve the status quo. So let's talk about you know the environmental status quo, right? So the most fam- the fam- the most famous person, um, the, the person everyone talks about with regard to this is is Catherine Hayhoe, the um, uh, Christian evangelical climate scientist, and and so she goes she goes around talking to you know communities and groups of evangelicals. Uh, well, of course, white evangelicals are very high on in terms of the percentage of denialists, right. and she talks she talks about okay, we need to do creation care. Right, and it talks about how environmental scientists are doing God's work, right, and trying to you know put say, hey, I'm one of you. Let's put this in our terms that we, you know. And so, so you can see how she's trying to dissolve the identity problem. The thing is that this, it, it, there's not much evidence that this kind of intervention really has much lasting effect. You know, you can bring people into the laboratory and get them to talk differently about the issue if you if you ma- you know manage the circumstances perfectly. But, but we, we need, you know, but, but this is going up against, every time we have an intervention like this, is going up against a lifetime of cultural identifications and loyalties. You know, all these people go back to their own community, where if you're, if you're, if you're you know, a, uh, you know, a auto, auto repair man in a, you know, small South Carolina town, and you start talking about climate change, you're going to lose business. Um, Quickly. Uh, right. And, and. You know, so it doesn't, so this, you know, have, you know, have listening to this one talk from, you know, this one, and she's, and she's wonderful. Let me, I'm not, you know, disrespecting Catherine Hayhoe at all. She's, she's doing, she's certainly doing her best and she's, she's terrific. Um, you know, over the long term, you know, we do have K through 12 science education, right? And there's, we have evidence that, again, going to, going to the actual data as to what works, that when you, when you focus the curriculum on not on scientific facts, but on scientific methodology, on science curiosity, right. and how science, you know, can debunk, you know, false beliefs, we we see we see you know good things happening in education. Um, now, now, but that's but that's long term. Obviously, that's you know that's going to take at least a generation, if not generations. Even if even if the federal government and our education department decided to take the lead on that, <laughs> yeah, well, which uh, that they're not going to do right now. That, yeah, that thought came um, to my mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's still that's still you know the effects of that are still you know generations away. And again, we don't we don't have time for that. Um, so, like the 
again, this this beautiful thought that we're going to convert people, you know, by reasoning with them is great, and 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 maybe in the long term it works. But but right now, I think we have to focus. If you're really serious about the metaphor that the house is on fire, you know, I'm not going to have a discussion with you as to whether or not the house is on fire. I need you to hand over the fire extinguisher. Right. So I mean, we we have to focus on defeating um, deniers, not converting them. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry that that doesn't sound like the, you know, the happy progressive way of doing it. And, and, and it all comes down to, um, it comes down to winning elections. I mean, we have to win elections. Adrian, I, this has been fantastic. I feel less intimidated now than I did at the beginning because you explained things so very, very well. And, um, I think you really help people understand that there's a lot of work for us to do at a personal level to, to figure out, you know, the way we see the world and try and figure out the way other people see the world and find some common self-interest. So I, I really want to thank you for taking the time and talking with us today. Mark, I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Okay. Listen, we've been talking with Adrian Barden. He's a professor of philosophy uh, from Wake Forest University. It's an expert on uh, all things in denial, I suppose. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed our cast today. You can Check Adrian and his work out at Wake Forest University. Uh, I also urge you to check out the conversation where he published his last work. It's theconversation.com. And you can actually become a supporter there. It's really worth it. Their motto, academic rigor, journalistic flair, which I think Adrian showed us today. And that's a place where fact is not treated like fiction. I'm going to leave you with one last quote. If you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt as far as possible, all things. That's Rene Descartes. Uh, remember to check out all the articles, podcasts, and videos at the Sustainable Century, including this week in sustainability, which will be up tomorrow. Uh, be safe and remember to keep the frontline medical workers, farmers, supply chain folks, and all others who are helping us stay healthy by staying at home. Thanks again. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields, host of the Sustainable Century. Thanks for listening. I hope you liked it. If you did, I encourage you to check out the Sustainable Century blog at thesustainablecentury.net. Remember to click like in all the right places. Better yet, pass the blog or pass the pod along. And remember, it's up to you. It's up to us to make this a happier and healthier world.